Well, good morning. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Chris. And I tell you, the last 30 minutes, I hate to even call that church. Wasn't that amazing? Like, I'm like, my mind. Um, I came in last night, and uh, they were rehearsing uh, that special song. And I'm like, Charlie, that's like out of bounds. That's awesome. Uh, So uh, we're starting this new series called uh, Hello, My Name Is. And if you're a guest with us, just know you can always go to renaissancechurch.org, click on messages, and there you can... uh, 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 watch, listen, download, share, uh, not only this, this weekend's message, but all of our previous messages as well. And uh, we launched last week a simple tool. Uh, so from a smartphone or tablet or your computer throughout the week, you can always go to renaissancechurch.org forward slash notes. And uh, during the message, you can fall, kind of follow along with me with the, the verses. Everything's back on the back wall, but we want to provide kind of the, the core verses, the core points of every message so that as you kind of move into your week, if you're like, what was that verse or what was that thought that Chris or whoever's up here sharing, I, you know, I forgot where that was, that's available. So uh, every week it'll be left up there until the next weekend, and then that weekend's message notes will be up there as well, so you can always follow along. So uh, that's that. All of us have gone to a conference, a meeting, a baby shower, a wedding shower, a dinner party, and walked into that front door or into that space, and there on a nice, quaint little table with someone smiling behind it, uh, has been handed a a name tag like this, right? And here's what I know in this room. There's, There's two groups of us. How many of you love name tags? Come on, be proud. How many of you love these? Oh, yeah, come on. It's okay. Be proud. You came into church this morning. You're like, oh, they're doing name tags. I love that. I've, I've been wanting Renaissance to do name tags. I'm so glad they're doing name tags. Now, for the rest of us in this room, I know. You walked in this morning going, I can't believe they're doing name tags. I'm not wearing those name tags. I hate those stupid name tags. I'm not, no one's going to make me put on a name tag, right? You hate name tags. I hate name tags. I walk into a place, and if there's someone asking me to put on a name tag, I try to figure out how I can avoid putting on a name tag. But this is what happens. They get that person behind that table with a stack of name tags who loves name tags. And they never allow you not to put on a name tag. They kind of smile at you and they're like, hold it, hold it out to you. And you're like, oh, thank you. And you try to put it in your pocket. They're like, oh, no, you need to put it on. And then you usually say something like, no, name tags are powerful because they help break down walls. Helps people connect with you because they know your name. And so I like kind of like begrudgingly like write my name, Chris, on my name tag, and I slap it on my shirt. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, really? This breaks down walls? My name's Chris. It's boring. It's commonplace. I'm sorry. I mean, it just is. Do you realize the name Chris from uh, 1972 to 2001 was on the top five uh, names of boys in America? It was. Technically Christopher, but, you know, the only people call me Christopher is my mom and dad when they're yelling at me. And, um, but it was on the top five list. From 1972 to 2001, it got to number two 18 different times. You know how many times Christopher got to number one? Zero. Am I bitter? Absolutely. My name underachieved. It never got to number one. But here's the upside to my name. Uh, my parents were early adopters. And so in 1973 is when I was born. They named me Chris. So on the bell curve, I was on the really early side because 72 is when it entered the top five names. I'm bitter. If your name's Michael, you've overachieved. Your name was number one 
out of the past 100 years. Number one, 44 times. Chris? No, number two, 18 times. But Michael, you've overachieved. And if your name's Mary, you set the record for 43 times. But we all get these name tags, and we write our names on it, and we slap them on uh, to our chest, and we're like, yeah, okay, that's my name. And it gives us false sense of kind of transparency, because the name is just a name. It's powerful, but it's just a name. I could walk into a dinner party, and they're like, what's your name? Eustace? Oh, nice to meet you. They wouldn't have a clue. Until I told them, like, my name's really Chris, but I'm kind of bitter because they never got to number one. But all of us, beyond just a name tag with our name on it, we wear name tags every day with our different roles on it as well. How we interact with different people. I sat down at my desk and spent literally 90 seconds and I wrote down a list of roles that I, I, I kind of uh, uh, interact with throughout the week. And this is what I mean by roles. They look like this. I'm a husband, right? Yeah, my name's Chris, but Chris is a husband. And Chris as a pastor and a brother and a dad and an author and a CEO and a friend, a triathlete and a son. These are just all the different kind of roles that I interact with people at different levels. Who I am as a husband is different. Who I am as a pastor is different than the son, different than the triathlete, different than the CEO, different, right? And throughout the week, I'm interchanging these name tags. Most of the time, not even thinking about it. And we all do that. We all have multiple name tags with multiple roles that we're interchanging as we interact with people throughout the week. So right now, you all were given a name tag on your seat. Some of you were so excited you wrote your name on that name tag because you're like, yes, name tags. Um, if you did that, there's more blank ones around. You can grab one from a seat. Uh, if someone's sitting in that seat, please don't grab it from their seat. That'd be awkward. But uh, gra- grab one. And then we're going to give you 90 seconds. And this is what I want you to do with your sharpening your name tag. I want you to write on your name tag, what different roles do you have? Now, they might look like my list. You, c- you can steal from my list, right? You can cheat. It's okay. Uh, but start writing down the different roles or the different name tags that you wear throughout, you know, a day, your week, your month. Uh, If you need help, you can ask someone next to you. You can Google it if you want, you know, if you're not sure. If you want to overachieve, I mean, I just did nine. If you want to do 10, all right, raise the bar. You can do that. You can beat my number. But 90 seconds, go. Write them down. If we had theme music, we'd play it right now. We should have theme music, like writing music. What would writing music be? Hmm. I know you, you came to church today. You didn't think you were going to have to like, do homework. It's challenging. I'm going to keep talking because some of you can't concentrate while someone's talking. I love it because you keep looking up at me. Will he shut up? Silence. About 30 more seconds. And here's a great thing, too, is if another one comes up to your mind throughout... Uh, uh, the message this morning, you can, you can like multitask and write, keep writing them down. That's cool with me. Multitasking is great. I know I'm still bothering some of you because I'm talking. Okay. Again, keep writing them down as they come to your mind. But what gets really kind of interesting is like, it's one thing to wear one of these name tags at once. 
But that's not reality. Most of the time, we have multiple name tags on. And some, some of those combinations are pretty simple. For instance, uh, husband and triathlete is it's this pretty simple combination. Because here's what I know, is when I get into my kind of triathlon training kind of mode of life, I know it's going to take time. And for the last two years, that, you know, when we moved here, life has been kind of chaotic. And I've been having this conversation with my wife coming into 2014. I have two races. I have my racing schedule. And it's been a conversation with my wife because I'm a husband. And what I know is when I start training for triathlons and I do half Ironmans, which it takes a significant amount of time, not like your full Ironmans, but it still takes a chunk of time. And so I have that conversation with my wife. Why? Because I want our marriage to be thriving. And so I I have that conversation with Kim. I wear these two name tags. I'm like, here's my races. What do you think? The family is is always part of race day. It's awesome. My girls and and my wife, they meet me at different points along the way, and they hold up signs. It's awesome. Uh, uh, But I also know the training takes time. So it's a simpler combination, but it's still very intentional. And then there's combinations of our different roles that give life. For instance, for me, uh, friend and son. I have this amazing relationship with my dad. And over the years, it, it's been really cool to kind of watch our relationship shift. I'll always be his son. He'll always be my dad. But then it kind of shifted into him being my friend and not just a friend, my best friend. So much so that uh, 17 years ago when I got married, Kim and I were having this conversation about you know, who's going to stand up with us. And she had this list of girls that she wanted to stand up with her. I think she had ended up with six and I literally kept on coming back to one name, my dad. I'm like, does that work? I have one, you have six. And I go, I'm sure there's some marriage rule book out there, but can we break it? And she's like, it's our marriage. We can do whatever we want. I'm like, done. So I just had my dad stand. He was my best man. And it's been amazing over the years that our relationship has shifted from just, you know, son, dad to son, best friend. Then there's some combinations that are really complicated. For me, one of those complicated uh, relationships is between pastor and CEO. I'm the lead pastor of Renaissance Church. It's my calling in life. But Renaissance Church is also a business. We have employees. We have benefits. We have uh, federal and local laws that we have to follow. I mean, there's a business side. And what gets real complicated is when I'm sitting down with someone and I'm wearing both of those name tags, pastor and CEO. And I'm having to bounce between both of those and have conversations. And sometimes I find myself going, well, which one am I wearing? And that person is wondering, which one are you wearing? I'm like, ah, because I like to default to me as a pastor, not me as CEO. But it gets real complicated. And then there's some combinations that are just critical, 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 critical. Like for me, the most critical combination on this board is me as husband, me as dad, and me as pastor. There's numerous families that have been decimated, decimated, because dad as pastor cared more for the church and the people within the church than he did for his wife and his kids, his family. And one of the things I committed to my, my wife early on is I'm never going to have kids that one day is going to say, Dad, you cared more for the church and the people in the church than you did for us. It's committed to her. We're linked arms on that. She helps keep everything in balance. And right now as a dad, uh, you know, our kids are 11 and 7, and a lot of time and energy 
uh, is being expended just because they're in every activity you can imagine. And we're going, we're going, we're going. And I just have to say no to a whole list of things right now within the church. Why? Because I'm a dad and a husband first. And God's call on my life is to be the spiritual leader of my family first, the church second. It's critical. And it's difficult. And my wife is very gifted at reminding me what's first. And I'm so thankful for her because she helps kind of help me live in that tension between both of them because I love the church and I love uh, what God has me doing and I feel called to what he has me doing. When you look at your roles, your different name tags, what are the simple combinations? What are the combinations that give you life and what are the combinations that suck the life out of you? What are the critical combinations? What are the complicated combinations? Because whether you're paying attention to it or not, we all are taking these name tags on and off every day as we interact with different people. And at any moment, we could be wearing multiple name tags at the same time. Attached to every one of these name tags, every role that we all wear, there's an ideal attached to it. There's also the reality attached to every name tag, right? We have an ideal for every one of our name tags. I have an ideal for Chris Trothway's dad. Kind of that ideal of like, man, I wish I could be that type of dad. And then there's this reality attached to it. But not only is my ideal, ideal attached to that role, my wife has an ideal for me as dad. She just does. And she has this picture of how she sees me as dad or wishes I could be as dad. My kids have ideals attached to me as dad. My dad has an ideal for me as dad. Many of you have attached an ideal to me as dad and as pastor. And guess what? There's this tension that is created between the real and the ideal, isn't there? It just is. We'd like to avoid all that tension. We can't. It's real. The ideals are placed upon us and we place upon ourselves. But then there's the reality to every one of those roles. But guess what? All of us, we have ideals attached to every single person we come in contact with, right? We just do. We place our own ideals on people. Whether this is your first time or you've been here numerous times, you have attached an ideal to me as Chris Trothwaite pastor. Just half. We do that. And between the ideal and the real is probably this tension that somehow we have to deal with and navigate through. So throughout this series, I don't know what my name is, we're just going to be looking at relationships. Because what I know is in this room, all of us wish that our relationships with, and you fill in the blank could be better. Marriage relationships, dating relationships, parenting relationships, maybe adult parent to adult child relationships, grandparenting relationships, boss employee relationships, friendship relationships, church relationships, you name the relationships, all of us have relationships that we wish could be better. And we all have relationships that are causing great tension and great 
And that tension and that pain comes from this tension between the ideal and the real. So we're going to use the Bible. The Bible is a, a fascinating, fascinating book. Actually, a collection of books. And it talks so much about relationships. And for some of you in the room today, uh, maybe you're like me, that you, you look at the Bible and you just think it's the infallible word of God. That's, that's what you believe. That's what I believe. What I get is some of you in the room believe some of the Bible, and then there's some stories that you're like, yeah, that's more fiction than nonfiction. You might be sitting there going, I don't believe anything in the Bible. And what's great is this. Wherever you find yourself kind of in that, that journey when it comes to the Bible, within the Bible, there's great, great wisdom, especially when it comes to relationships and how to live your life. And so we're just going to use that as our guide. And maybe for you right now, you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, great, Chris, you're going to use the Bible as the guide, help us in relationships, but no one can ever live up to the, 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 the ideals in the Bible. Have you ever felt that way? You're like, oh, it's the Bible. I can, never, I can never hit that bar. It's the Bible. It's way too high. As I've studied through the Bible, especially start reading these stories about people, the Bible isn't filled with perfect people. It's a mess, relationally. Have you ever taken time just to think through that? I mean, the very first marriage, they're blaming each other. No, you did that. No, you did that. No, you did that. No, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm glad that marriages started off like that. The first sibling group, one brother killed the other brother. The first one, I'm like, wow, there's set up the bar high. We find Noah drunk, naked, laying in his tent. Way to go, Noah. I'm sure your kids are so proud of you. Joseph, his brothers, uh, took him, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, and then lied to their dad. I bet that made for great family reunions. King David, his son, Absalom, raised up an army to go after his father because Absalom wanted the kingdom. And some of David's guys went and killed his son. The story about a prophet marrying a prostitute. That's usually not the sermon that's given in churches a lot. You get into the Bible and you realize that the relationships in the Bible are a complete mess. And they're filled with friction and tension and hurts. And you kind of lean back and go, yeah. It gives us a real picture about how difficult relationships truly are. So today, we're going to read a few verses found in this book called Romans. It's written by a guy named Paul. And uh, Paul, in all of his letters, he really loves lists of things. So if you've ever read any of Paul's letters, he writes all these letters to different churches and people. He loves lists. And this is actually one of the longest lists that he wrote in all of his letters. And he's going to give us a list of ideals. And as we go through uh, a few of these verses, uh, basically what we're going to do is on the left side here, we're just going to capture that list of ideals. Because it will be so easy to read all these verses, pull all, all these nuggets of ideals, and then forget them all. So we're just going to populate this left side with these ideals. And the verses will be on the right side as well. So let's jump into this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. That word sincere uh, means without hypocrisy or without deception. And the Bible is filled with verses about what love truly is all about. 
It helps us define love, and it starts with God is love. God defines love. God embodies love. Paul also writes that uh, out of faith, hope, and love, that love is the greatest. We also read in the Bible that love uh, pushes out or covers up a multitude of sins. Jesus talks about love that out of all the commands, right, the greatest is love God and to love each other. And so Paul says, hey, we are to love without hypocrisy. We should love without deception. Love should be pure. And then he writes, cling to what is good. That word cling literally means to tie yourself onto good. And as I read the word evil, you know, my mind quickly went to what's happening in Syria. That's evil. The atrocities in Syria, that's evil. I'm not evil. That's evil. But the opposite of good is evil. And then I started thinking through, well, Chris, what do you do that's evil? I'm not evil. Syria, that's evil. I'm not evil. And I started thinking through the thoughts that enter in my my brain. As I interact with different people throughout the week, throughout the months, and all of a sudden I have that thought, that evil thought, and I think to myself, where did that come from? Like, ah, I can't even believe that I'm thinking that. And that's why Paul says, tie yourself to good. Because we all are going to want to kind of drift to our evil side of ourselves. And he goes, avoid that drift. Avoid that pull. Tie yourself to good. So when you want to, you're tied to something better. So on the ideal list, we write down love and cling to good. Paul goes on and he writes, be devoted to one another. And that word devoted has these strong like, connotations to family ties. Now, 2,000 years ago, families would literally live by each other for generation after generation after generation. You didn't move away from home, which is totally different than our culture today, right? Families are everywhere across this country, around the world. The family tie isn't real strong anymore. And he says, be devoted. This family tie to one another. Have these strong commitments, these strong relationships in love, and then honor one another above yourselves. We live in a culture that isn't about uh, uh, honoring people, lifting people up. We live in a cu- culture that is all about stepping over people to gain a greater rung on the ladder, right? I know, I've talked with many of you. Man, if you work in finance, if you work in Wall Street, if you work in the city, man, it's all about pushing other people down. Because if you don't, They'll push you down. Remember this list. It's countercultural. And what Paul is saying is, hey, elevate other people. Lift other people up. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, Chris, if I do that, they're going to be thankful and they're going to shove me down further and I'm not going to get ahead and I'm not going to and I'm not. I'm just saying. When it comes to relationships, here's the ideal list that Paul's Laying out for us. The ideal is simply elevate others. Lift other people up. He goes on. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now, I'm not sure you know, where you find yourself in, in your spiritual journey, but I know some of you, you come to church because this is like the shot in your arm for the week. 
Like you come to church and you're like, okay, I'm going to go to church. And spiritually, I, like, I want to increase the intensity so I can make it through my week. It's okay. I've done that myself. So you come into church and you're like, I hope worship is good today because I really need it. Man, I hope, I hope Chris like swings at the message. And I hope maybe not a home run, but I hope he hits a, at least a solid, uh, uh, gets to second base, right? A good double. That's, that's a good message. Maybe right now you're like, oh, hey, double. Or maybe you're giving me a single right now. That's okay. But single's great because, you know, you're on base, I'm on base, and you're like, okay, I'm going to leave church, and I want to have that fervor, that intensity. And then next week you come, and you sit back, and you're like, oh, worship was, oh, I, I didn't do it for me. You get done listening to the message, and you're like, well, Chris, you struck out on that one. Thanks a lot. And you leave. I know. I know. We've all done this. And you leave going, man, church didn't do it for me today. Hopefully next week. When it comes to spiritual intensity, it has nothing to do with consuming. You realize that? It just doesn't. When you get back into the Bible, here, listen to what Jesus has to say. When it comes to spiritual intensity, when it comes to our spiritual journey and movement and growing and zeal and fervor, you know what's attached to it? It's not consuming. It's getting up, doing. That's why Paul writes serving God. It's about action. We want the intensity to come by consuming. God's like, no, 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 no. Consuming, consuming, consuming. And there's an important place for that. Don't miss what I'm saying. But right, if we just sit and we consume and consume, consume calories and never get up, get, get up and move, what happens? Simple. Same thing spiritually. Paul says, get up. Put your faith in action. And when you serve God, the fervor and intensity comes. So the ideal, serve God. He goes on. He says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And I love that he links all three of these together. We did this series back in December of 2012 called Hope Rising. And we looked at this word hope. It's actually the Greek word uh, elpis. Because we all have this, this thought about hope. Like it's, there's a question mark to it when we use it in our vocabulary. I, I hope that it won't rain. I hope that I get. I hope that this turns out. And there's a question mark, and there's a, and there's a 50-50 chance that it might happen. But this word hope, el peace, has everything to do with confident trust. Complete confidence and complete trust in the sovereign God that whatever happens, I'll walk with God. And he says, be joyful in hope, knowing, confidence, Trusting in who God is. Patient in affliction. Right? Think, think about those two words. Oh, I want to be patient. This is so painful. I'm just glad it's taking time. Right? Whenever we get into those moments, those trials, those moments that create a lot of pain in our life, affliction in our life, bad news in our life, we want them to be over. We use terminology like, I can't wait to get through this. I can't wait until we can move on. I can't wait until, I can't. Paul says, there's something that happens when you walk 
patiently with God with joyful hope through difficult times of your life. James, the brother of Jesus, he wrote the words, consider it pure joy. Whenever, whenever we face trials of many kinds, consider it pure joy. Because in those moments, what God can do, and then Paul finishes up, says faithful in prayer. Remember, prayer is not so much about moving the hand of God. Prayer is inviting God to move within us. And as we pray, God shifts and changes and molds our heart. And that's why we can be filled with joy even through seasons of pain. So on our ideal list, we write the, word joy, the words joy and pain. Paul goes on. He says, share with, uh, with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Uh, the ideal is just to give generously. And so many times that word uh, generous, you know, is attached to some dollar sign, some monetary. You know, there's a need and I must give money to it. And that's a component. What Paul is saying is, you see a need and how can you fill that need? Maybe it's monetarily. Maybe it's just your time. Or maybe it's a talent that you possess. Maybe it's uh, the industry that you work in. Or maybe it's a hobby that you do. Or maybe it's just one of those talents that you have and, you know, no one knows about it. But you see the need and you think to yourself, how can I help fill that need? Not rely on someone else to fill, fill it, but what can I do to help that need? And then he said, practice hospitality. I love that you use the word practice because for most of us, it's not just one of those normal, natural things. For a few of you, it is. But there's nothing like bringing people into your home. It's powerful. Every year in May, June area, we do a big team member gathering for everyone who volunteers at, at, at Renaissance. And it's just a celebration to say thank you. Uh, because this place could not be what it is without uh, people just giving other time, their talents, their, their resources, um, it's what Renaissance is about. And, uh, and we have it at my house. And what has always blown me away is the number of people that have walked up to me and just said, Chris, thank you. Thank you. I mean, we have hundreds of people. I mean, they're everywhere. Thanks for having it in your home. There's something about our, our home. When we invite people in, it breaks down walls. I mean, whatever you don't, don't have name tags at your house. That'd be awkward. But... Unless you like name tags, practice hospitality. So he goes on. He goes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. There's this massive list that he gives here, but stuck right in the middle, I think, is the one that ties it all together. He goes, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony. Think about the word harmony in kind of the, the musical context. You've got the melody going, and harmony says we're going to add notes to the melody. It's going to give it depth. It's going to give it movement. And Paul's saying, guess what? You could sing the same note with someone. Be the same. You can do that. But when you add harmony to that person's life, I mean, think about it in the context of, you know, mourn with those who mourn. He's not saying, you know, Someone's mourning and you come beside them and you cry with them. You might. I'm not saying that's bad. But to live in harmony says, what can I do with that person to add depth, to add movement, add 
beauty to that moment. And maybe in that moment, it is crying with that person. Maybe it is sitting and listening to them. Maybe it is just walking with them and waiting to see what they need. Maybe it's laughter. How do you add harmony to people's lives? And then he says this. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And the ideal is simply this. Don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. Now, when you look at this list of ideals, there's one that ties them all together. There's one, and it's going to be pretty simple and pretty intuitive, but so difficult to live out. So we look at this list of ideals, and there's this one right in the middle that ties them all together. This this is what Paul writes. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. See, we look at this list of ideals. As it depends on, insert your name, Chris, live at peace. Here's what I know when it comes to relationships. We spend so much of our time blaming everyone else. We're so good at it. So good at it. My wife and I get in this argument, I mean fight, I mean discussion, because we don't fight. And at some point along that discussion fight, screaming, someone says, well, you said, well, you did, well, you raised your voice, well, you threw out what... And also, we're going back and forth. Who raised their voice first? I know no one else does that in here. And Paul brings it all down, this list of ideals. And that one thing that ties them all together is it depends on you. How are you going to serve? How are you going to, to, to create harmony in relationships? How are you going to, to walk beside people that persecute you? How are you going to elevate other people how are you going to see the need and give generously how are you because when it all comes down to it guess what we can't change anyone else the only person we can change is ourselves and paul just says hey when it comes to you do whatever you can to create peace in your relationships now next week and the week after we're going to look at kind of our past because what i get for all of us, is our past hurts impact the ideal and the real in our lives today. So I'm not saying there's not past issues and present issues that impact the ideal and the real. That's true. And we'll navigate through those. But when you strip it all away, all you can change, all I can change, is me. So two questions I'm going to leave you with, and then I'm going to pray, and then I hope I pray this week this is what you start thinking about. Maybe ask a spouse or someone you're dating or a friend because sometimes people see what we don't see in ourselves. Here's two questions. How am I creating peace within my relationships? The second question that goes right next is how am I creating discord? Because it's either peace or discord. There's no in between, right? There's no kind of peace. It's either peace or discord. How am I, how are you creating peace or discord? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. And uh, 
I just pray. I know for me personally in my, in my relationships. And uh, I got so much work to do. But Lord, I pray for all of us as we interact with our different name tags on that we really start paying attention to either the peace or the discord that we're creating within our relationships. That list of ideals that Paul gives us, which is all about what can we do to make better relationships. Relationships that thrive. In your name I pray. Amen. God bless. Have an amazing week.